Joining me today is Adam Beard. Adam has been the director of high performance for the Chicago Cubs for the past three years. Before that, in a same role with the Cleveland Browns from 2016 to 2019, and even prior to that, working in the sport of rugby, including with the Welsh National Rugby Union team. Uh, Dr. Beard has a PhD in exercise physiology and a master's in sports science. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, the long, long intro there with, with all that you've been up to here. So I wanted to tap your mind because recently I've been having conversations, uh, one of them dealing with kind of evaluating front offices generally, another dealing with trying to figure out whether or not teams are going to continue their injury, you could call it luck or or lack of luck there. And I realized that I just don't know that much about whether you would call high performance, sports science, what even goes on in strength and conditioning. So I want to kind of tap your mind here because I think it's a growing and a bigger part of, of the field. So I guess first off, maybe we'll just start with definitions here. Strength and conditioning, high performance, sports science, all of them bring up a lot of ideas, some similarities, some differences. How do you think about those three terms and are they the same thing? Are they different things? First of all, they're different things. Um, but I think the strength of the industry within kind of high performance, you know, your strength and conditioning and, and stuff like that. Like if you start with strength and conditioning, someone can come up and be really focused in weightlifting, for instance, like Olympic weightlifting. Or someone might be come from more like the fitness HIT. Um, and then there's a lot of different kind of things. Someone might be very physiotherapist or, or physical therapist, and then go into strength finishing, so they're very um, centric on the injury prevention. You know, so there's there's that the strength, there's the weakness in terms of regulation. So um, people can call themselves all these different titles and stuff like that, and hence my title, the high performance director, which you know I never aimed for, but um, we're trying to regulate that at the moment. And, and there's a confusion, especially probably in the states, in terms of sports science. Um, the high performance director, manager, whatever is is an overseer, so they bring all these different people together. Sports science is a very general term. So if you actually have a look at a, a pure scientist, a, a you know a physicist or something like that, they're very pure scientists. Whereas in the sports scientist, he's very general. So he kind of he or she takes over several different areas. So we have physiology, which you said I have my doctorate in, which I do. Um, there's biomechanics, motor learning, sports psychology. So this person comes in as, as a very generalist. Um, we probably, as an industry, made the mistake of someone who helped with GPS because that was new. Hey, we'll just term them the sports scientists. So um, realistically, it's a growing field. We're trying to regulate it. But the sports scientist is within the department. So high performance overseas medical strength and conditioning, sports science, nutrition, psychology, and brings it all together and hopefully helps the player and coaches perform better. Yeah, I mean, I can see some similarities with data science, which is another term that it could mean someone who's extremely qualified in one area versus another. It can mean someone who combines all these different things. It can mean someone who maybe isn't quite as qualified, but then you throw that title on there and it makes it, it seem a bit better. So sports yeah. science is, is a subset of a larger, a larger field where you're talking about here, or a larger responsibility that you would have as the director of high performance. 
Yeah, yeah. And look, we're, we're trying to solve problems. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, and um, rather than having opinions, you know, we try and use data for that. And everybody uses data. The strength of the initiating coach uses data. It's not just about tonnage anymore. You know, they've got these things, force plates and linear positions, transducers and measures, you know, different strength diagnostics. So hopefully the sports scientists can go along to these different um, sub-departments and work out some of the problems that they're having, the practitioners, and then start measuring stuff. Because realistically, we can't get better or have evidence-based practice or in this regard, practice-based evidence um, without collecting data. And hopefully the sports scientists, why we employ these people is they understand how to collect clean data. Right, right. And, and probably generate uh, new data that you can, you can come up with, as you mentioned, from GPS and, and from other places. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about your path. So I mentioned before, now we're transversing, I guess, a few different sports here. How much of what you do is applicable to any sport? Are there certain sports that you have noticed, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, that rely on it a little bit more heavily? Uh, maybe it's a bigger part of the pie as far as what the total front office functions may be. Maybe we can talk about the different sports a little bit. And then, of course, talking about football, specifically since this is kind of the, the focus of the podcast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, in the end of the day, all sports, you know, they want to win. So they, they play the game. They all practice, so they have practice schedules. Um, so, you know, they all have those uh, commonalities. So I think in terms of high performance, we all want to win. So, you know, I've, I've been dubbed when, when we're not going well, oh, why aren't you the uh, director of low performance? Well, you know, the, the aim is high performance and, and, you know, things that comes from, from Europe, um, the European model, um, they tended to get all the coaches to do masters in sports science, you know, the former GDR and USSR and, and that sort of thing. So that had me fascinated about that. Um, my passion was rugby. So it's a contact sport, it's a running sport. So that shares that with football. And that's how I kind of found myself in, in football. Um, and then I looked at like the pure sports, like track and field and Olympic lifting. So, you know, we do these different preparations um, to get better at, at things like football and and that sort of thing. Whereas in baseball, we probably don't have that, but we still have a lot of conditioning where if you have a look at track and field, it's probably our pitches are similar more, not exactly, but, you know, um, javelin throwers and, and that sort of thing. So that conditioning for throwing and, and that sort of thing. So you can have commonalities and, and that sort of thing. So, Okay, so when you were coming to the NFL in 2015, how built out was the more sciencey, more precise side of things beyond your traditional, you know, strength and conditioning aspect of what coaches were looking for? Yeah, great question. Um, and I, at the time, I was doing my PhD, so I was not interested in coming to the states at all. Like, I, I loved NFL; I'd always followed it, but uh, um, it was very interesting at the time. So, coming over and having a look at some of the things that had the potential to, to um, for me to make potential in terms of for performance. And, you know, as you say, there was some technologies that were being used in isolation. And I think the, and this is what happens, is a lot of the tech uh, technology companies come in and, hey, here's a GPS or here's this new thing and it's going to revolutionise what you do. It won't, but it, it may help. And it, it's normally 
you go after the technology once you have a problem. You know what I mean? Normally they come with, oh, well, I'll solve this problem. Whereas in you need to have the problem first. And there was a lot of things in isolation. And, you know, in a lot of sports you have the big two departments, medical or, or training, and then strength and conditioning. And normally high performance, uh, the franchise will, will kind of, they're having problems with them too communicating. So normally they say, hey, look, come in and, and can you solve these two departments? And it's, uh, look, they both had different training. They look at it at different lenses. You know, I give the analogy of, you know, if you're a hammer, all you see is nails. And, and that's the thing is you have certain training. And my thing is, is trying to have a look at what's best for the sport and the athlete and the coach and, and reminding the practitioners that it's not the sport of strength conditioning or the practice of athletic training or and that sort of thing. So. Okay, well, then how maybe would I guess I would think of incentives. So how are people's incentives then going to be aligned? Is that something that you have to deal with? Because as you mentioned, strength and condition coach, they're going to say, hey, look at how look at how much stronger these players are versus when I, I first came in there maybe would be something that they would look at as an incentive or as a goal or as a target. What sort of targets do you have uh, and how do you align those within these different areas? Great question again. But, um, I think, you know, you take your car along to uh, to get repaired and you have your different specialists and they're all going to shout out about, hey, you know, the wheel alignment or this or that, you know, that sort of thing. So it's trying to first off get a holistic kind of diagnostics um, about the player. Now, I always talk about um, the worst thing you can do as a high performance unit is turn lions into zebras, you know. So Miles Garrett. You know, like you, you can see what his strengths as a young young man would have been, you know, strength and power. But if you if you made his repeatability and, and conditioning so much higher than that, then you would take away from the line and you'd become more of a zebra. So he wouldn't be as uh, effective. Normally, I like to ask the player and the coaches, what do you think this player would have been really good when he played you know, at high school, what would he be in special at? And we try and emphasize that because that's what's made them special and can actually help with our performance. And then it's trying to align, one, the goals of the coach, but, I mean, how's our practices going to affect that player? Because his injury rates will go up if we take him away from his speciality or why we actually um, drafted him. And that's where I'll talk to the R&D and the scouting, especially the scouts. Like, once... When I first got to the NFL, it was almost like a handover. The draft, you get the player and then the scouts, you, you don't even talk to them. And it's like I just kept going into the scouts' uh, offices and said, what did you see special in this player? How should we develop him? What do you think physical, mental qualities? So it's just okay, gathering yeah. the information to make sure that people can remain let's face it the nfl is pretty special and if you've made it there's something special about you and and to take that away would would be terrible and i think that would accentuate injuries and different things yeah you know i could also see within the nfl you know even within a within a position group you could probably have a pretty vast range of different types of players but you know, across position groups, we're talking about, you know, an offensive lineman versus a, a slot wide receiver or something like that. It's almost like we're talking about different different sports here. So are there are there buckets that you put players into and then 
you can kind of test based upon past experience what what works for that type of player or do you want it to be very individualized even beyond that no you're talking my language now buckets we use we use that terminology so yeah got that there Kev. um you know we have a look at buckets in terms of physical and mental qualities and, and we first put them into that and then we individualize so you know we start looking at um, different assessments for injury prevention but i mean a receiver for instance you know there's it does my goat as such of of getting these um norms for things like ankle range of motion well a sprinter won't have a great ankle range of motion because he'll want stiffness at the ankle which actually makes him uh have the ability to apply more force on the ground so he can run faster or sprint faster so we don't want to, again, turn them into zebras, you know, like, and, and that's the big thing. So we put them in buckets, but then we also individualize. And one of my big things was developing an eye for running and, and sprinting and understanding sprint mechanics, especially in football. They do that quite a lot. And I'm not talking, obviously, the linemen and that sort of thing. There's differences there, but um, similar things, you know, like, I've talked to Joe Thomas so many times. Joe Thomas comes from a shot put background, which I come from a track and field background. I said, Joe, when I go on training camps for to have a look at all these international throwers, they do all these special exercises. And he goes, we should be doing that. So we started developing special exercises for, for linemen. Now, to get a guy like that, you know, me coming in in 15 and him helping me develop special exercises for the group just allowed me then to, to win over the coach. Because the coach was like, wow, you're really trying to help my technique. And I'm like, absolutely. So it was, it was good fun in terms of having someone that is just such a good player and understood mechanics so well. So, Yeah, yeah. You've seen a lot about Joe Thomas. I guess yoga was maybe something that he was adopting quite a bit uh, later on in his career as he was aging uh, for joints and for other things. So, yeah, it's interesting to have a player like you're talking about to get that true buy-in and then – it helps if that player is a Hall of Fame level level player. That probably helps get by in a little bit too. And that's that's the thing is is probably throughout my career and learning that is being with the veteran players, going and kind of living in the locker room and and seeing how they live and and how they influence and and that sort of thing, and then trying to make sure that we're aligned. And I think it's really important for them to have a voice and to have trust you know, to be able to go into that locker room and and talk to some of the more veteran guys and see how they feel and what we're doing, on even on the practice field and, and being able to share that with the head coach, not, oh, so-and-so doesn't like this. It's it's more like, hey, we've worked hard four days in a row, coach. Like there's some guys in there that are, pr- are pretty tough men that are, are pretty sore, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, but I was also thinking when you mentioned the mental aspect of it a second ago, uh, in, in the last question, you know, not everyone is Joe Thomas, right? So no. cer- cer- certain players are not going to be on that on that sort of level. But I remember seeing an interview once with uh, a tennis player. Uh, I'm probably going to mess up his last name, but it's Nick Kyrgios. He's this Greek guy, extremely high talent level, but he wasn't much of a practicer. He wasn't like a, a grinder, like a lot of those top tennis players. And he kind of blew my mind a little bit when he mentioned something where he said that like working hard, like most people put it in this category of, well, you're not trying hard enough. It's, it's like a, 
a lack of some sort of morality of not working hard enough. But he was saying that is also a talent in a way, too, that you can think of other things. Certain guys can just work harder than other guys. Is that part of the mental aspect of what you'll look at? Yeah, I think that, that definitely is. I, I think, you know, the, the difference between an individual sport and a, and a team sport is, is, is huge. You know, like, because, you know, track and field, like you can have a, a sprinter turn up and he's not having a great day. So the coach pulls him and, and you can change the schedule. Whereas in football is more definite, you know what I mean? Like we're playing Sunday and we need to prepare and, and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, you have some of your best players who, who need to lead the young ones in terms of how to deal with giving your best when you're not actually at your best. And I think, you know, some of the leaders in the locker room can, can really do that. Um, of course, like, you know, we have our psychologists and sports psychologists and, and mental skills, which it was a big one when I came to the States was a, it was a new kind of area for me. We, we more have that psychology or sports psychology background, but I can see the worth in terms of the mental skills um, practitioners as well. Um, getting the best out of the players so yeah now how, how does that work as far as i want to talk about maybe players the cycle of 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 the player at least within a particular franchise i don't know i think it differs probably from between baseball and football a lot if you think about being able to have someone in the minor leagues bring them along slowly often the top prospects are guys you know straight out of high school a lot of times that are that are coming in there whereas in the nfl if you're a head coach, probably half of the head coaches in the NFL need to perform this season or they, you know, conceivably could could be out of a job if, if things don't go poorly enough. So how do you think about that when you're talking about developing players? Because the average life cycle for some of these guys, depending upon when they come in, if they're rookies, you could say they're a high rookie pick. They'll be around for, you know, three, four years at least. Others, free agents that are coming in, it could be a single season and then they're gone. So how do you decide like where to invest in these players based upon not only what the coach may need, but what the larger organization may need even beyond the life cycle of the particular coach that you have? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I think if you get bogged down with, you know, giving someone a, a gold, silver, bronze kind of service, then you're going to struggle. I, I, for me, I've always said to my staff, you, we've got to give everybody gold standard um, service because you just never know. Like Tom Brady's a great instance. If he would have come into a franchise on the pick than the round that he came in and I didn't give him the opportunity to excel or, you know, like obviously at the Patriots, they gave him the, the same... Um, concentration as everyone else, then it allowed him to do that. And I think we have those everywhere. So we've always been, and, and, and when I came to the NFL, it was one of the things, we want players, if they're on the bottom of the roster, if they go to another franchise, they're going to talk about how well we took care of them and we gave them everything we could. And, you know, I shared programs to different franchises in terms of, hey, this is player A, He's now with you. Here's all his stuff. You know what I, mean? I, don't, I don't. I don't mind sharing stuff. You know, like I'm a, a young me didn't, <laughs> an older one um, do because you know, like you can only do what you do your best. Someone else can't do you their best. So I'm, I'm happy to share things. And it was all about the player for me, if I'm honest. So yeah, yeah. If you saw 
the picture and the 40-yard dash of Tom Brady at his combine, uh, there probably would <laughs> would have been a lot of hope at, at that point. But you're right; anyone anyone can be can be molded into that that level of of player. Um, maybe concentrate a little bit more on some of the technical stuff, being that this is more of a analytics podcast and the the sports science side of it. So you mentioned the GPS, and that's been a bigger thing within the sports science world, at least within the NFL, than even on the strategy, NFL strategy side, where now it's opening up. It's as far as having the information across the league given to these different teams. Whereas before you could have had GPS information on your own individual players and tracking them and things like that, that technology was it easy to to be able to harness the power of something like that, or was there so much low hanging fruit that you could do that that is like you more of a afterthought or a cherry on top if you can get to use it? Yeah, great question. Um, when I first came to the NFL, because we'd been using GPS for a long time in rugby, um, but rugby being a constant sport, we we talked about um, meters per minute you know, yards per minute, whatever, like, and that was a big thing for us. But obviously, football was a start stop. So, you know, we added up all the all the different metrics and, and stuff like that. And it was interesting, because I remember distinctively going into the receivers room and just showing the coach the numbers. And he was shocked. He was like, 5,000 yards? 5,000? What are we going to do tomorrow, Adam? And I went, the same coach. You just, it, They used to run this. You just now know it. You know, like they've always done this. So um, it allowed us a, a good platform. I, I found the GPS once we started getting the game data um, was really important because um, what we were doing in practice was was a lot, uh, a lot larger stimulus than probably we needed to do. So it's like maybe we need some more mental reps and, and, and different things, especially for some of our rookie receivers. When the rookies come in, they struggle with the volumes and intensities because they just haven't had that. Um, and, and, you know, the veterans are very smart pushing them up to go um, before their turn and, and stuff like that, routes on air and different things. Um, but, it, yeah, it was, it was really powerful. It, it allowed us, especially like training camp, you know, like training camp. So you think about a, a, a football week, um, Monday's recovery, Tuesday, play a day off. And, and you know, the teams change and all that sort of stuff, but this is quite a common one. Wednesday practice, so we have one stimulus. Thursday practice, two stimulus. Friday, half, so we've got two and a half stimuluses. And then Saturday, walk through and one game. So we're talking about three and a half stimuluses because we'll, we'll talk the game. I know the game's harder, but in terms of running um, volumes, it's, it's pretty similar to a practice. But then training camp is six days in a row. So it's you're not preparing for what you need during the season. So suddenly we get all these soft tissues and then the players used to go for summer and that sort of thing. So that's where I got analytics to help me design. Okay. So if the head coach gives me this, the schedule or the script, I can put it in and then I know what numbers are going to come out. So I know who's going to do too much or too little. So, and it's normally for me, we talk about all this load management but it's actually players not preparing enough. So they don't do enough. The guy has to step up, unfortunately, because someone else got injured, the number two, and he, he pulls a hamstring because he's not he's not done any, uh, well, as much volume as, as required. So 
Um, so things like that, analytics really helped me kind of just get that information um, out of, the, of what the head coach was and, and develop quality programs to make the player successful. So, Yeah, now that, it sounds like it could lead to maybe the classic, um, I, I would classify it as nerds versus coaches idea where there is this inherent value on toughness, maybe more from, from, from the coaches and seeing things like taking things a little bit easier. You mentioned doing more mental reps, things like that. Um, that seems like it could be in conflict where there are at least narratives that come out, whether the truth behind them or not, about particular teams, if they do do well during the season, I've seen coaches point back all the way back to what they were doing in training camp and saying, you know, we were going full out the entire time and we were building this culture of toughness and everything else. So how, how do you communicate and influence against that sort of thinking if you've come up against that sort of thinking? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it's interesting because you try to, because it's a contact sport. So you have to develop contact conditioning. Like it's really important. If you have a look at the, the martial arts, if you've seen iron shirt and different things, you know, they hit with the bamboo. You might have seen blood sports with with uh, Jean-Claude, you know, and he, he kicks the tree. Look, it's it's a funny kind of movie, but in the end, he's trying to condition the leg to be able to handle hard contacts. Like, let's face it, football is a hard game. You know, like it's it's it, it's all out. So you've got to develop that. And and things like motor learning, motor control, if you don't do that with contact and speed, then you're probably going to be off during the game. So it's trying to get that, um, you know, that measure or that, that right kind of uh, um, amount of, of those things or balancing those. So I look at like if you put the pads on, probably the, the running or the, the sprinting loads are going to be less because contact actually negates that. So, you know, sometimes I'd say to the coach, look, you know, we need to have a more of a contact day. So I'd try and put it in a different term. So, hey, straight away, he's like, oh, tough day. Great. You know, so I'm happy with that. Now I have to communicate that to some of, some of the, the linemen. Look, it's going to be a tough day, but you, you're saving some of your tight ends receivers. You know, like that's that's really important for us because, you know, actually a great receiver in terms of sprinting is actually not built for football. He's built for sprinting. You know, he's got his little small ankles and high calves and, and that sort of thing. Great for sprinting, not great for contact. So um, I tried to communicate it, kind of have a look at that. And then, you know, the R&D helped me with that. The analytics helped me with that, with those numbers and, and prove some of those numbers of, okay, that reduces some of our sprinting numbers those days and that sort of thing. So it's just a constant education. You can't just go in there and just say, hey, look, I've got all the answers. I haven't. I remember the head coach when I first got the, to the NFL just gave me all the scripts and said, can you just run through them and, and let me know? And I was like, I'm not a football coach. Like some of these things, I don't know what, you, what you're giving me here. Yeah, yeah, I, I could definitely see that. In fact, it was funny when you mentioned like different player types, like a, a receiver not necessarily being built for for playing football. Um, now, now this is something I wonder how how this would go over. Can, can there ever even be an instance where you mentioned talking to the scouts about these particular players, where you can identify by their body type 
maybe how they should be used from a football perspective a little bit differently than a coach might think? Or is that like you're, you're, you're getting sent home and fired immediately if you're like suggesting to coaches maybe players should actually be deployed in a different manner based upon uh, their physiology? Yeah. Um, so if my first year in the NFL, I uh, put it to the ownership and, and the head coach, of course, because the head coach was, was in charge of that, but to spend a week with each position group because the big thing is for me, especially as a foreign high performance director, and I was the first high performance director in the NFL, of yeah. not understanding the culture and Jesus cultures within each of the position groups. So um, I kind of said, Hey, I'd like to spend a lot of time and the coaches welcomed that. So I spent a week, I'd have lunch with the different players and, and different things. So it was really interesting in that. Um, I think once you start watching film and the coach kind of yells at a player or, you know, emphasizes to a player he should have got to the ball or should have got to the man. And you realize physically he probably can't do that. Or, yeah. or um, you know, he, he couldn't break well and, and come out, out of that well. And it's like, wow, we're kind of failing that player because the coach is asking him to do that and we're not working on that as a, as a high-performance group. So that helped a lot to go back to my group and say, hey, so-and-so needs to be better at this physical quality. How are we going to break that down? And, you know, I, I always look at it reverse engineering that. And then I would talk to the, the coach and say, that was really interesting today within that meeting coach. You know, you mentioned player X couldn't or, you know, you wanted him to do this. Actually, physically, I don't think he can do that. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. So then you had that kind of two-way questions. I didn't go in and say, hey, you should change this or – you, I, I know more than you. It was more of a curious kind of thing. And that's how I try and adopt it. Of, Gee, that was really interesting. And, and try and get a two-way kind of conversation. And normally they'll come back to you. You know, you'll be at lunch and they'll come and grab you. or And, and, and the conversation, the dialogue will, will in, increase. So, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I guess maybe that could also come into play. I was thinking when you're, when you're telling the coach, hey, coach, uh, I'm not sure if this player can do that. Um, that might be also lead to the the thought of well maybe we need to find a different player who 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 can do that. So even from a personnel standpoint, does that ever come into it also as far as the the, the information, the knowledge that you can impart upon them that maybe there are limits sometimes to who can be squeezed into certain roles, who can be coached up enough to do certain things, and that could also lead to you know, playing time and personnel decisions and bleed out in that sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I found that when I first got to the NFL, I had some of my strength staff had, had been at other franchises and they were like, why do we get these players that are not very physical? And they were a bit down. And I said, well, we can either keep complaining about it in our own room or we can do something about it. So we can come up with an assessment, which should align to the assessment of what we do you know, for our players, so then we can benchmark. And that's what we tended to do. So when we would bring in a player, um, and I worked with with um, player personnel and, and the front office, is to be able to have a time in the warm-up is to do all our physical quality testing. And it was only the main one. So then at least we could say um, this player rates this in strength or power or reactivity. And for an example, this player on our roster is that, and, uh, you know, sometimes it, it was very striking. It was like, you know, this player is 
way lower than than our player group. And from there, it's 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 almost saying, well, physically he's not up to it, but hey, if you see something in football, then we can try and develop it. But we were trying to give them a little bit more of where where they ranked within our within our system. So. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Now, were you involved much dealing with um, draft prospects? I know there's a big, like medicals is something that, one of the bigger missing pieces when people think about the scouting process. You know, people will say, I believe this player is so good. And then you'll often hear if a player, most of the time that they're falling down uh, the the medical boards will be because of a medical issue, or that is really the the X factor that the outside analysts have no access to. I guess there can also be like the mental testing, other things are going on that we don't yeah. have access to too. The interviews, what comes from that? But is that also part of the process? Is assessing a player medically, or is it just really like red flags for those types of prospects, and not a comprehensive medical review? Yeah. Um... Look, medical definitely because that was been within the departments and it's tr- it's a tradition. But then we tried to have a look at things like anthropometrics, you know, so certain anthropometrics, you know. I'm not sure what anthropometrics are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, arm length, you know, things like uh, uh, So that would be an anthropometric, my, my wrist size or my okay. ankle size. So we tried to have a look at, you know, different anthropometrics, um, you know, you'll You'll see good jumpers. Normally, the lower leg is 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 longer than um, the thigh bone. You know what I mean? Like so, which tend to not make great squatters, but actually good jumpers. You know what I mean? Like so, um, which is we try to have a look at, and and some of the other, you know, in the literature and in different sports can be, you know, lead to injury. Or we really liked more performance. You know, like it's again back to the Tom Brady. You know what I mean? Like he may not have had great uh, stats in different things, but he's one of the best, if not the best of all time. So, you know, you've, you've also got to look at that mental aspect. So we always went in and we had a look at some of the different physical qualities and we changed different ratios and things of the combine and had a look, but we didn't want to overstate either, you know what I mean? Because in the end, the scout, the front office are looking at tape a lot more than we can ever. We just gave a little pinch. Um, normally, I would have, you know, the GM kind of say, hey, can you look at this guy's running? You know what I mean? Like he's had some soft tissues. Is there anything that you can improve and, and stuff like that? So I'd get video and stuff like that. And then, you know, if we had the top 30 prospects, then we would do that testing again and assessments and kind of say where they are compared to our guys. Um, you always want better, you know, of course. Yeah, yeah, you always that, that that makes a lot of sense, especially when you're looking at different filling different needs as as you're going through yeah. that. But in um, first one of my first years, it was interesting. We took a, a lineman. Um, I think it was in really later rounds. Um, should have gone second round, but they kind of said, "Hey, look, we'll virtually have a red shirt year. You know, we'll get him strong." I was like, great. So we brought him in, did our assessments. Well, he had a back injury and couldn't couldn't squat. So I was like, this is going to be really hard to make him strong. You know, so that was where I think we got more collaboration because it was easy. I could have said, hey, you should have came to me. But it was more like, hey, look, an idea would be going forward is maybe we should talk to some of these um, performance teams 
at the college. You know what I mean? Because if I would have just rang the head strength coach and said, hey, you know, how's this guy going? Oh, he, he doesn't squat because of his injury and, you know, he struggles with in the weight room. Okay, well, we've probably got a problem there trying to get him strong, you know. So yeah, that helped. A problem that can't be easily overcome <laughs> also, also. Yeah, yeah. There's not a solution. There's not a clear solution there. Yeah. So, and, then, and that's the thing is the more opinions you can get, or the more data you can get outside and bring it together, I, I think the better. So just, I always just looked at opportunities like that of like, okay, this is a great opportunity to get us involved because in the end we wanted to be involved because, you know, like we're, we're getting the, the player. We want to make sure that he's, he's at his best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, maybe I want to talk a little bit more about kind of how to, to measure success. I think from the injury front, you know, whether players are missing time, missing snaps, getting injured in, in one capacity or another is one way to measure it. Um, whether players are improving based upon different metrics that you have for strength and conditioning is probably another way to measure it. And I guess my my question would be, when it comes to something like injuries, and because this is a discussion we had about whether front offices, we're, we're, we're ranking NFL front offices. It's a very yeah. like, media nfl media thing to do you put something in the ranking so everyone could be upset of or happy depending upon where <laughs> where their team ranks and the person that i was ranking with had a big emphasis on whether or not players miss time or not and giving credit to the front office on that and it's not that i didn't think there is potentially a strong link i just don't know like there's certain things there's a certain degree of randomness to everything injuries being one of them how would you say that relationship is between like a good quality program uh, you know, taking care of the players and then that link to results. Is it like more of a trust the process type of thing? And over time, the results will be good. Or can you tie them pretty closely to each other? That good process will lead to good results. Yeah. Um, look, the more talented player is normally more re- resilient. You know, like that's, <laughs> let's face it, it's easy. he's at the higher, higher end of the food chain. You know what I mean? Like, and, and let's face it, going back to that kind of uh, animal kingdom analogy, you know what I mean? Like a, a lion oversees all his pride and, and stuff like that, but there'll be a time where, you know, he has to pass it on because the young young lion comes in and challenges him and, and injures him. And that's kind of like football. And But in saying that, then I do think that you can prevent injuries. You can. Um, it's... When I got to the NFL, the big black box for me was the gap between, which is coming up close, is the OTAs and uh, training camp. And because they, the players just go and train um, with their trainers, you know, and different things. And, and so I really put a lot of emphasis on educating that, you know, I mean, like you can do hard work and all the players work hard. You know, I mean, there's not a player in the in the NFL will come back and and you think even if they're you know the center or whatever he's a little bit out of shape he's still done a lot of work and it's it's what work he does because anyone can do hard work it's just the work needs to be specific so for instance I had to educate the players on beach sprinting you know what I mean like the sand well the contact time is about five times the amount that you would do when you come back. Um, and the, the players probably haven't used cleats as much and, and different things. And that changes all of these different conditioning aspects. 
you just get them where you want them in OTAs and then they go away and they're influenced by people who who have their best at interest but don't understand the specifics. So it was then contacting all their trainers and trying to, which was exhausting, but um, trying to influence them for the best. And, and you know, even when I probably thought, I, I really don't agree with what you're doing, when I had some testing, I could at least show them where they, their player ranked. And let's face it, as, as humans, we have egos. We want our player to be at the top of the rankings. So that helped a lot in terms of that aspect. So, yeah, um, I guess on a, on a related note, I'm thinking more of how we look at the value of certain players. It's it's too binary sometimes, but they'll, uh, players will get a label as being injury prone is probably the most common thing that you hear about a particular player. It's almost when you're projecting them for an upcoming season, people will say, well, you know, this guy's probably going to only play X number of games because he's going to miss a few games because he has in the past and so on and so forth. Like how reliable is something like that versus just, you know, you've rolled the the dice 10 different times for 10 different seasons. Some players are going to are going to be injured a couple different times versus not. So how reliable is that past history on what what what's going to happen going forward? Or are there better measures of trying to figure out which players need to really be worried about that? Yeah. No, it is. Look, look um, we know the prediction of soft tissue injuries. The more soft tissue injuries you have, the more that you're likely to get. You know, you have scar tissue and, and you know, in the muscle and, and different things. But, you know, there are things that you can do to mitigate those things. So, for instance, you know, we had one of our top veterans when I was there in the NFL. Um, he was considered a little bit injury prone at the time. Um he was doing his return to play and, and I just questioned him and I said, look, you know, you sprint a lot. Is and, and we put in different categories. I said, is this high force or low force? He goes, oh, of course, high force. I said, okay, so those exercises you're doing over there, are they high force or low force? He goes, oh, low force. I went, okay. So then you do a lot of tackling, high force, low force, high force coach. Oh, great. That exercise you're doing over there, what is that? Low force. I said, okay, is this going to help you play well? Oh, probably not. So it was like a light bulb. And then, you know, he started looking for those exercises that would help him. And, you know, lo and behold, he, he wasn't as injury prone. You know what I mean? Like, and, you know, he's, he's still playing in the league, which is fantastic. And, and um, I just think sometimes it's just making sure that you do the specifics well. And it's just finding players because players will gravitate to what feels good or maybe what they did in college. And normally in college, they do well despite not because of, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was also thinking this is maybe it's maybe not be the case. But I was also wondering if do players sometimes have the wrong impression for like what type of body they need versus what type of body they believe is like the most powerful you know, the t- t- type of look. I mean, yeah. famously, you see these these offensive linemen who, you know, they look a certain way when they're playing and then when they're out, like Joe Thomas now is, you know, 2% body fat or something and looks and looks absolutely amazing. But if, if he tried to look this most powerful, healthy sort of way when he was playing, he wouldn't have been as, as good of a player. I mean, that's a little bit different than some other positions, but is that ever a conflict? Yeah, it is. It is. As humans, and I, I normally explain it to, to players, um, as humans, we look at 
before we're either working out and doing these different things, nutrition for performance mm-hmm. or longevity. And I always say to the players, don't ever look at what I'm doing. I'm this little five foot seven, you know, have no ability in football. I'm looking at longevity. Like I, yeah. I want to be fit and healthy so I can come in and help you guys. You guys are looking at performance. So what, you know, pertains performance in football may not help longevity, but that's, you're getting paid a lot of money and that's your, that's what you've decided to do. That's what we're going to do. And I'll, I'll advise you performance wise. Now, you know, I'm not talking not healthy, but I'm just saying as in, you know, you may need to be a lot bigger. Joe Thomas, Joe Thomas struggled in the end to keep weight on. And and Joe will, will be easy to say that. So he, you know, we discuss things like intermittent fasting, keto, which I never do with players, but mm-hmm. I knew Joe wanted to look at that post. You know, he was educated, but he had to do a lot of hypertrophy work outside the the weights, the weight room program to keep that muscle on. And we had to work really hard with the nutritionists and stuff like that to keep that muscle on. And, you know, Joe was in the building a long time to make sure that he did everything. You know, he was super professional like a dream to work with yeah yeah i've seen on his uh social media all the 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 keto the the keto stuff keto stuff he's definitely kept up on on that yeah Um, we joke all the time about different things so it's good yeah. Uh, well, so one thing we, we we kind of mentioned Brady in a in a couple of aspects here, but when I think about Tom Brady and the age curve or age cliff that that normally is talked about with with players, I think the age cliff may have been a bit overstated sometimes because you know if a player has a very down year and they are 38 years old, they're just more likely to be replaced than a player who has a down year who is 28 years old whether they actually hit this cliff or not is, is a little bit difficult to tell, but there does seem to be a trend when we talk about Tom Brady being potentially, you know, the, the best quarterback season of anyone last, last year, how well he played. He was right there at the top. Someone like LeBron James in basketball, having logged, you know, tens of thousands of minutes and continuing to play at such a high level. Like how has aging been, defeated at this point have you guys defeated aging now at this point or is it something where these guys might be more outliers and it really is closer to what it's always been yeah of course they are outliers let's let's uh, let's make that clear (laughs) um but they're also outliers mental physical but they know what works for them you know like tom sells the the tb12 which you know whether you agree with it or not he has a process for him so and he works hard. And I think this is the big thing is these guys work hard. And, and you know, we've seen it in COVID and different things with the shorter preparation that's higher injuries. These guys constantly work themselves. You know, like they, you know, reports LeBron spends at least a million dollars on his body, you know, outside the, the, the franchise that he's playing for at the time. So, these guys constantly prepare and, and they work really hard, but I think they work smarter. And uh, I think that's that's the big thing in football. Like, you know, I know Dr. Tim Gabbett, he, he, uh, he's the load management guy. Um, great friend of mine, I've used him a lot. He comes into these franchises and they're kind of like, well, can't we work harder for longer? And he's like, no, you got to train. And that's his motto, train harder but smarter. And I think... Tom does that really well. 
And I think LeBron does that really well. They've both got a guy. It's interesting. You know, they've both got a trainer that follows them around at the different franchises and that. They know their body. Um, I think, you know, they've probably worked these things out earlier than, than some of the other players have. And I, I think maybe because their success have gone up and they've decided to invest in themselves, where sometimes players invest externally. And it's like education, isn't it? You keep investing in yourself, you're going to get better. And I think those two are fantastic at it. Yeah, I mean, maybe those weren't the best players to make a a general (laughs) point about here. But I guess maybe to generalize a little bit more, like let's say – if you when you're building in your expectations for how a quarterback would age five years ago, ten years ago, however long ago, yeah. you would say, okay, around the mid thirties is probably there's probably going to be that's when the, the age curve is going to start to set in. Um, should we be looking at maybe all the different position groups in a way um, and saying? with this advances that we've had in nutrition and and how they were able to take care of their body and all these different resources, should we move that maybe a little incrementally further that we should expect the, the average player to be able to sustain if they have that talent, you know, just, just like their body being able to continue to match with the mental acuity and everything else that they have? Yeah, I do. I do. And uh, I think that with maturity, they understand that efficiency, you know, so – a good example is a receiver. A receiver might run, you know, when he's young, he, he might not run the, the most efficient routes, but he'll get there quicker because he's young and he's explosive and that sort of thing. Whereas in the veteran, we'll just know his routes much better and, and he'll be much more efficient. So he can conserve more energy, you know, and, and I think that comes to maturity and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I do, I do think you can shift it. Um, whether it be the rule, I don't know. You know, that's, that's, that's for us as humans, just to continue debating and arguing. It's, it's, you know, they're good debates. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. More, more, more topics we can discuss how long Tom Brady, will he play till he's 50 or not? Could be a good, uh, uh, debate for everyone to, uh, to, to, to go through on TV. Well, um, Adam, thanks so much for your time here. Actually, you know what? I didn't, I didn't prep you for this, but I was gonna ask you before you go, do you have any like particular player? that you can think of where maybe how, when you met them, kind of who they were from a uh, fitness conditioning standpoint and then how they matured through the NFL that you can really point to as someone who kind of like really got it and, and, and a success in that sort of way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You threw me. Um, Can't say Joe Thomas. No, obviously not. He was, uh, he was, he was, <laughs> he was pretty complete when I got there. I just had to. But you can't I, take credit for Joe Thomas. No, I, I, I had to. Bad. I, I had to just kind of keep him. This is like, <laughs> stay on the train, Joe. You know really like? So no, n- not at all. Um, geez, I'm trying to think. Um, uh, Danny Shelton was a good one. You know what I mean? Like, that, yeah, yeah, Danny. Danny came in. Um, in, in, you know, uh, not the condition that, that he needed to be, you know, like he, he was big in college and that sort of thing. So that was an ongoing challenge for me. Like we had a a love hate relationship, me and Danny, like, you know, uh, coaches may wanted to have his weight down. He wanted it up. Um, I Dexa scanned him all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, 
I got him to send me pictures of his meals right through summer, every single one. My phone wow, was blowing right. up, and that, that was With tough. Your own personal but, Instagram feed of his of his uh, of his uh, eating habits. Yeah, and it's you know it through the years I was there, you know, he got better and better in terms of just um, his process and and buying in. He was a tough one to win. He was a tough one to win over. So. Um, Probably that one, you know, like the, I could easily say that some of the sprinters and, and you know, receivers and stuff like that, but the big guys I have a, have a good relationship with too. So, Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's got to be great from, from your perspective to see, you know, like someone come into the NFL, like go through the routine, stick to it, work towards that, and then, you know, go on and have a successful career and, you know, get a second contract and get, get that payday and everything else being part of that process. Like you mentioned, going and helping team players when they go off to, to the next team, that's like a very fulfilling thing, you know, outside of obviously the team goals and the wins and everything else to seeing like successful players basically have yeah. successful careers. Yeah. And in the end, because I've been through all these different sports, it's, it's, it's the same everywhere. It's, it's making humans more successful, which makes you more successful. And it's, you you go through the hard times with them, and I and that's the big thing in the NFL of trying to make sure that they have trust when they're down, of of trying to empathise with them, and and you know you want the best, and and I've said what you've said to them. Look, in the end, I want you to get a contract. You know, what I mean? like if you can get paid, that's great for me. Like that's that's helped me a lot. I don't want players from other teams, you know, because then I have to start again and, and different things. So. Um, it's it was good so okay well thank you again so much adam for joining me again adam is now with the chicago cubs so baseball fans out there we know uh that they're doing the right thing there i think you got what 30 different people working for you there in in the cubs so it's it's a big investment yeah yeah no i think last count was 44 or something full time or so wow. um, <laughs> yeah that that is that is uh that that's you're you're like at your own company basically that you're working within the organization there so um much continued success to you and your career and uh everyone who is tuning in thank you so much for listening i hope you found this interview as educational and enlightening as i did and i'll be coming at you guys next week thanks so much